Anyone who is a thriller or suspense fan surely is familiar with the name Cotton Malone. He, the character, appeared in The Jefferson Key, The Emperor's Tomb, The Paris Vendetta, The Charlemagne Pursuit, The Venetian Betrayal, The Alexandria Link, and The Templar Legacy. The author has sold over 12 million books. Actually, he has more than 12 million in print right now. They've been translated into 40 languages and sold in 51 countries, and his road to publishing was long and arduous, spanning over 12 years. This guy is also an accomplished instructor, teaching writing to audiences across the globe. And when he's not writing, you can find him on the beach, a golf course, or traveling, um, trying to think of another novel. Of course, we're talking about uh, one of the most acclaimed suspense thriller novelists today, Steve Barry. Steve, thanks for taking time with me. Oh, that's very nice. You made me blush. Uh, hey, man. <laughs> that's cool. Very nice. Well, uh, this is Greg Grasso, so let's get personal with Steve. Uh, Steve, listen, I want to start off with, uh, I've been talking with uh, Andy Harp and uh, Sandra Brown and Kathy Reichs about uh, uh, their involvement with Operation Thriller 1 and 2. Um, our audience should be aware, Operation Thriller 1, uh, which uh, happened last year, a bunch of you, uh, a bunch of you uh, famous thriller writers got together, you went over to... Uh, to the little sandbox over there in the uh, desert <laughs> and yes. uh, visited our troops. So uh, I'd, I'd like you to just spend a couple minutes, if you would, um, about Operation Thriller 1, how that all came about, and, uh, and what was it like? Well, it was Andy's idea. He came up with the idea of sending thriller writers over on a USO tour. It had never been done before, so he approached the USO. They liked it. The Pentagon liked it. So he came to me. I was president of International Thriller Writers, which is 2,000 thriller writers from around the world. It's kind of our trade group. And I was the president of it. And he asked me about it. And I said, yeah, let's do it. So we got myself, Doug Preston, uh, Jim, Jim Rollins, and uh, David Morrell, and Andy. And we were thriller, Operation Thriller. And we went nine days. We went to Walter Reed and Bethesda hospitals first and saw the wounded, which was an incredibly moving experience. And then we spent the rest of the time in Kuwait City, Mosul, Baghdad, Malad, Basra, went all over Iraq. It was quite amazing. Um, they loved it. Uh, the troops just loved it. They had never had a contingent of writers before. And reading is the number one recreational activity over there. So they wanted to talk about it. They wanted to go into writing and reading and stories and we went from dawn to, du to, to to midnight every day, solid for nine days. It was quite an experience, and it was so successful that they decided to do Operation Thriller 2, and that's when Sandra Brown and Kathy Reichs and Mark Bowden and Clive Cussler uh, and uh, Andy Peterson went uh, recently, and they went to Afghanistan. Right. And now they're getting the planning stages for Operation Thriller 3. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I actually talked to uh, 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 Peterson, and uh, I'm talking. I'm actually I'm talking with uh, Andy Harp uh, next week uh, to finish up a, a special show I've got for the USO troops. Uh, um, I was unable to uh, talk with Clive, but uh, I hear he's quite a clown. <laughs> do you do yeah, you know Do you know time. Clive? Yeah. I know Clive. Yeah, he is. He's got. Uh, he likes to tell jokes, and he's a. Uh, uh, he's a a man's kind of man, you know. He's really in, into things and yeah. and uh, easy to work with. And I'm told that he had a great time over there, and I knew he would. I knew he'd be perfect for that. And uh, and he was uh, he did great, just like when we had David Morrell 
all we had to say was, here's the father of Rambo. <laughs> right. And, and the whole room just went crazy. <laughs> I bet. I bet. That's all, that's all we had to say. Here's Rambo's daddy right here. This guy that created him right here. And, and the same with Clyde. Clyde, you have that with uh, Dirk Pitt. You know, these are these are iconic writers who've been along, around a long time. And yeah. it was just an amazing experience. And I would uh, I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Yeah, I, boy, I'd, I'd love to do it too. I, uh, I was a corpsman during uh, uh, the latter years of uh, the Vietnam War conflict, and uh, uh, I was stationed in the middle of the Indian Ocean on a little uh, base called uh, Diego Garcia. And uh, that was interesting because we had some casualties on their way to uh, the mainland stop by, and it was tough. It was tough. Hey, tell me, man, um, I, I, you're, you're not military background, correct? Oh, I, I did. I was 18 when the war ended. Right. Okay. The, okay. the war ended, and I turned 18, and uh, and the draft was over then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what was it like flying in a C-130, man, with a flak jacket and everything else? I mean, uh, uh, Harp said it was it was so cool. He said the technology the technology that these guys have is amazing. It's an amazing experience because we uh, I had never flown in something like that before, and. and it's just, I mean, you're just bounced and bopped along, and <laughs> and uh, you get used to it after about two flights, two or three flights. You begin to get used to it, and towards the end, I was fairly used to it. I could even sleep during the day, some on it. But the the combat landings, though, I don't know if I could ever get used to dropping from fifteen thousand feet to the ground in about thirty seconds. Correct. Uh, that was. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they don't give you a warning. You know, the captain doesn't come on and say, "Well, we're about to take a dive to the ground. Hold on." He just does it right <laughs> and um the very first time that that happened we were all sitting in the back and i was looking at jim rollins who was across from me and we were all trying to be really cool you know and all at once you go straight down and your stomach comes up in your throat and it doesn't leave because it's it's a very long experience and you're just a powered descent and we're all there and we're all about two seconds away from losing it but none of us lost it we all <laughs> held tight and then the next couple times they did it, we we were ready for it. Yeah, I, I read uh, your day three blog um, for, uh, on your trip, and uh, you and Preston and Rollins and Harp uh, were, uh, uh, I guess, uh, upstairs on the flight deck. No, no, you were downstairs, and Preston got to sit in the cab, right? Yeah, we, we alternated. Everyone got a turn up. Oh, uh, man. On the first combat landing, David Morrell and Doug Preston were up there. Mm. And then uh, I was up there on, like, the third one. Mm. Now, when you're up there, you see it coming, so you can get ready and prepare yourself. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's, it's just that thing you don't know it's coming. So it wasn't so bad for me when I was on the flight deck. But down below, I mean, it was it's quite an experience. It's like a, as I said, it's like a roller coaster drop that goes on for about 30 to 45 seconds to a minute. <laughs> It's a, it's a, and then the next thing you do, bam, the wheels hit the ground. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and, you're, and you're there. It's quite a, quite experience. Uh, we, uh, if not, we'd never, none of us had ever done anything like that before. We were, you know, it was something, but we adapted. We were the guinea pigs. The idea was to use us to see if this would work. Oh, yeah. Hell and yeah. it worked, and we did fine, and we told them before we went. They said, lay it on us. Give us, we'll do whatever you want us to do, and. And we did. We went pretty solid, and I'm told that Operation Thriller 2 went pretty solid, and they're now in the process of planning the next one uh, yeah. to send the next group over. Hopefully this will become a yearly thing. Um, 
you know, to uh, our troops who are stationed overseas. Absolutely. Well, uh, one thing, uh, one more question real quickly. Um, uh, you golf, I hear. I do. I okay. do. What's your handicap? <laughs> I don't have one legit, oh. but, I, but I play to about a 12. Okay, fantastic. About 11 or 12 I play to. I don't play 18 holes enough. I play a lot of nine holes. Right. But I can shoot oh, 41, 42, you know, 40, 40, 40, 44, between 40 and 42, pretty constant. So what did you shoot at the Bagdell, uh, Baghdad Golf and Country Club? <laughs> well, right there, you don't have any greens you hit to. You hit to water. That's what I hear, yeah. Yeah. So I put the ball down. I put the balls down. It was about 11 o'clock at night. This was really weird. And we're banging those five woods out into the into the lake. And you, and you're you know you're hitting them out. It's about 220 yards across the lake. And I hit a couple on the other side. And I went. Well, you know, I had to be careful because the military headquarters are on the other side. But what was really neat is in the background was all these explosions. It looked like fireworks going off in the background. No. And we looked over there and said, look at that, man. Look at those fireworks going on. The, the guy said, no, 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 no. That's not fireworks. Someone's getting blown that's up. That's mortars, baby. Yeah, that's mortar fire, <laughs> oh, my friend. God. Um, and it looked just like fireworks going off. And they were, um, you know, busting something that night. Oh, yeah. And oh. Uh, But we, we did it. We, we wanted to to experience it and the guy said come on out here we want to show you this and we went out and all of us hit the balls out in the lake i love it i love it that's crazy man well i i um uh, uh, i imagine that was a, an amazing time and uh uh boy i hope uh i hope we get an opportunity to interview uh the new group uh next year well listen um let me slide over to something. I've uh, I've interviewed uh, some folks, uh, David Baldacci, Vince Flynn, Jeffrey Deaver. They're lawyers for crying out loud. You're a lawyer, trained lawyer. What is it with you lawyers? Why are you all changing and writing? I mean, what is it? Is it is it uh, what is it? Is it the discipline? Did you have a uh, you know uh, a life changing event? What what happened with you? I think what happens with most lawyers, as it does with me, I practiced 30 years. The first 10 years was very interesting and exciting. The last 20 was just absolute torture. Mm. Here's the life of a lawyer. (laughs) People come to see you, they got a problem. No one comes to a lawyer unless they've got a problem. Now, it can be a good problem, like I want to adopt a child or buy a home or something like that. But most times it's a bad problem that they come. (laughs) They sit down, you tell them what to do. They don't listen to a single thing you say, and then they blame you for everything that goes wrong. And that's the life of a lawyer. And after about 20 years of that, that will begin to eat you alive. And you've had enough, and you just can't do it. And I came to that. I just could do it. Now, I would have done it the rest of my life if I would have had to because that's what I was trained to do. But I like action, history, secrets, conspiracy, international settings. I love those kinds of stories, and I like to escape. So I started to write what I like. I I tell my students all the time when I teach, writing what you know is horrible advice. Mm. That is not good advice. Instead, write what you love. Now, I could defend you for murder. I did many of those. I know rape. Uh, child molestation. I did. I defended everything and anything. I was a criminal defense lawyer and I was a trial lawyer, and I did. A, I did thousands of divorce cases, but I just didn't want to write about them. 
And so I escaped to that. And I think most of the lawyers who are writing, who are writing and were able to, 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 to be successful at it had a similar experience as I had, where they had enough, and it was time for them to do something else, and they had some stories to tell. And that's what, I think that's what does it. Hmm. Well, you, you, st- you decided to write in 1990, right? I did, but it took 12 years from the day I wrote my first word to the day I sold my first word. So it was a very long process for me. Yeah. You did it by yourself, right? Oh, yeah. Just me. Wow. So just me. And, uh, and I was able to get an agent in 1995, and she stuck with me for seven years and 85 rejections until we finally made it on the 86th time. Holy mackerel. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So, um, okay. Well, th- that makes sense. I mean, uh, I want you to talk about, though, um, you <laughs> – where do you get these ideas? Now, I know that um, some of you guys that are that are very well-known and, and uh, very well-protected, uh, um, I, I guess, in, in the, uh, in the uh, defense community um, – I know Baldacci from time to time is consulted. Do you ever consult with uh, these government agencies to get ideas or to help them? Uh, I don't. I don't know. I, I've heard this several times where they say that you yeah. know, fiction writers are consulted by the government, but yeah. I've always been a little skeptical of that because. I don't know what I could offer to them. I, I, I make stories up. That's what I do. I'm a, I'm a, I make stories up. I'm a, I, I fabricate stories, and I create stories to entertain people. So I'm not sure that I could be much help to any uh, to any uh, intelligence agency or anything like that. I don't think that I would be a, a whole lot of help to it because, I, as I said, I, I just make up – it's fiction. It's stories, and the object of my stories are to entertain. So that's what I look for all day long is how can I entertain people? Uh, now, if you can learn a little something in my books along the way, great. But I've never been asked to do it, and I'm not sure that I could offer much help. Right. So, okay. So, unlike, uh, well, mm, not unlike, but you, so you craft these characters out of your own creative mind. You don't. Yep. You don't do. You know, uh, hard research. Let's say. Um, you just let your mind, your creative, uh, uh, that creative process happen, right? And that's how no. it evolves? Well, it's not that simple. I okay. mean, I, I do a lot of research. I used around 400 sources to write a novel. So, Beautiful. Because my novel has a lot of information in it. And it does have a lot of information, but you know these are ga- gar- that's garnered from historical sources. Yes. The characters, though, are created out of your brain. Yes, you sit down and you figure out these characters and their motivations. And then you have to craft them where they're consistent with one another and that their motivations make sense and everything goes forward. All that has to be done, and that takes uh, a lot of time. That takes the majority of the time, by the way, is that right there. And the research for me is, a, as I said, a very involved process of about 400 sources. Mm-hmm. So, um, ha- okay, tell me, uh, let, let's uh, briefly, you know, you've got, you've got a, um, a pretty widespread um, and I love how you attack uh, and maintain a thread throughout your novels. The Templar Legacy, which was your first book, correct? That first Cotton Malone book. My right, first book right. was The Amber Room. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yes. Okay. I, first three were standalone. Okay. So um, seven books now on the Cotton Malone series. Is this guy ever going to die off? 
I hope not. You I hope, hope he stays not. forever. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I certainly hope not. I, I, I mean, I've gone to a lot to create him, and I, and he's uh, he's evolved quite a bit over the seven books so far. Yes. And I really like this guy, so I hope he'll stay around a, a long time. Now, this year, 2012, he's taking a vacation. He's not going to be in this year's book. Uh, I've created a new set of characters and a new um, – Tale, but the same kind of thing, action, history, secrets, conspiracy, international settings. But Cotton's going to come back next year in 2013, so we're writing a standalone this year. Crazy. So yeah. what's uh, what's your latest uh, book, The uh, Columbus Affair, about? That That's coming out in May, right? That's May 15th, and that's the standalone. And, uh, yes. It, it, obviously, the title kind of gives away what it's about. It yeah. deals with Christopher Columbus. Uh, I'm dealing with a guy, uh, a, a disgraced newspaper reporter by the name of Tom Sagan, who mm-hmm. gets himself caught into something very interesting dealing with Christopher Columbus. And Columbus is a fascinating individual, you know. We don't know where he was born. We don't know where he was raised. We don't know where he was educated. He was an expert seaman, but we have no idea how he became that. The chart he used to to cross the Atlantic disappeared, you know, 400 years ago. The the journal that he kept has never been seen. It disappeared at the same time. Uh, there's a great mystery associated with with Christopher Columbus, and then there's one secret that's true and accurate. The greatest secret of all attributed to him, and that's what fascinated me. Unfortunately, I can't tell you what that secret is. It'll give the whole book away. But there's something really cool about Christopher Columbus that this novel is going to delve into. And great settings. We start in Florida. We go to Vienna, then to Prague, and then down to Jamaica to finish up. Oh, really? Okay. And there's actually a connection between Prague and Jamaica that involves Christopher Columbus. No way. Yeah, there actually is. There. Um, no there actually is a, uh, a connection. Boy, I uh, I can't wait because I'm actually Polish and Italian. <laughs> so this this would be fun for me. You're going to enjoy it. So very, like I said, there's a very interesting secret associated with him that I stumbled across years ago. Historically? Was, historically. Yes. Yes, there is an actual – I didn't make it up. It wasn't, it wasn't mine. I didn't make it up. Uh, there's others who have, who have come up with this. So uh, I put together this novel with it. So I think you're going to – it's be pretty cool. Wow, wow. Hey, I read something um, about you. Uh, you were raised Catholic. and um, You went to a parochial school when you were younger. I did. I, did. Um, uh, I think you and I are a year apart. I went through the same process uh, or the same discipline. Um you know, Catholic school, the discipline, the nuns, uh, I think that helped me, uh, helped me with my discipline, my approach to, you know, giving of myself, so on and so forth. What, what the heck did you learn uh, in those early years? Did that help you? Did, did, did your early childhood help you with your discipline, with your career track, the way you think, the way you handle life? I mean, what yes, was uh, it? Going to Catholic school made a different, all the difference in the world because I was taught by the nuns there that you got, when you have a job to do, you do it, and you stick with it till you get it done. Now, of course, with the nuns at Catholic school, if you didn't get it done, there was pain associated with that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there was. Yes, immediate, direct, and awful pain associated <laughs> with it. I say all the time that if those nuns and those schools existed today, they'd all be in prison. 
because we call that child abuse today. Yeah, right. Yeah, you right. know, that, that's what it's called today. But in those days, it was called discipline. Oh, and man. they were tough, man. I mean, they were just brutal. And so you learn. You didn't come in the next morning and say, I'm sorry I didn't have my homework. Yeah, you did it one time, and then there was going to be just – so much pain, you're not going to want to do it again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I relate, man. I relate. I don't know about you. I, I've got one nun, uh, Sister Mary Catherine, in my head. She she was the uh, English teacher. She had, <laughs> I'm sorry, but she had the mustache. She when she sat down, she had the little stockings on her on her ankles. I mean, yep. you could see all this, and and she would fall asleep halfway through the class sometimes. Uh, <laughs> Oh, tell me, is there? Our nuns weren't like that. Our nuns were mine, but they were uh, back at conception, and they were they wore hat, full habits. Okay, and uh, they were tough. I mean, we had a couple of older ones, but most of ours were younger women, yeah. and they were just brutal. But they were they were good teachers because that's all they had to do. You know, they didn't they they taught school. They went to the convent. That's yeah. all they did. You know, and the convent was right next door, so yeah. they were right on site. I was one of the few students who was allowed to go inside the convent and work in the convent. So I got to see them in there, too. And it was a very interesting place. And I, I remember Catholic school with bittersweetness because it was tough. <laughs> but I will say this. It taught me things that, that kept me going later in life. And I've said a lot of times that I probably would have never been a published writer but for those nuns because I learned discipline from them. I learned how to stick with something and hang with it. Because, as I said, it took me 12 years to get published. So, you know, you've got to have some measure of discipline to hang with something like that. Sure, sure. What, what'd your da- what did your dad do? Um... He was a salesman, a traveling salesman. Uh, mm-hmm. He's still alive, and uh, he uh, uh, just retired a few years ago. He worked till he was 70, and uh, he would leave every Monday morning and come back on Friday afternoon. And so uh, my brother and I were raised by our mother, basically, during the week, and he was there on the weekends. Mm. And uh, and that's that's how it worked out. She was tough too. She was she was as tough or tougher than the nuns. Mm-hmm. So you you didn't get much slack cut to you in any way. No, no. I'm, I'm the oldest of eight, and and my mom. Uh, ugh, I don't know how she even survived with eight kids. I tell you, I don't know how many rulers and uh, sticks. She, you know, she broom handles, and it's like, what's going on? Yeah. Anyway, that uh, I love that big family. But but you you were just your brother and yourself, right? That's correct. Just yeah. the two of us. And, uh, uh, neat, anyway. neat. So, um, did you have a good? Did you have a good upbringing? Sounds like uh, you're a yeah, pretty solid was, guy, you know. Yeah, got, uh, yeah I, 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 no complaints. Uh, yeah. I was taught. Um, I went to Catholic school till high school, and then I, I went to public high school after that. Yeah. Uh, I didn't. I, 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 there was talk of sending me to the parochial high school, but in those days, it was on the other side of Atlanta, and yeah. the, the other side of Atlanta in those days, we didn't have a lot of interstate highways, so getting to school every day would have been like a two-hour ride. So uh, I talked my mother into letting me go into public high school. So I went there, but it was uh, you know very different you know in public high school, and I you had to adjust. See, I wore a uniform every day, yep. and you know you're wearing clothes, you know regular clothes and everything. Everything had to change, but no, I, I did fine. I mean, I went to high school, I went to college, and then I went to law school. So uh, no, I didn't have any of these uh, troubled uh, childhoods or anything. Everything turned out fine. Wow, crazy. Um, you have a family, correct? I do. Yeah. Um, I do. You want to? I have three children. Thank you. Uh, 
two are grown, two are grown, uh, and one, my daughter, has two children of her own. So I have two grandchildren hmm. as well, and then I have a 13-year-old uh, daughter. Uh, that's uh, she's still she's still in the growing up stage. So uh, there's uh, the three children, two grandchildren, and. Uh, uh, we, uh, we, you know, they live about an hour away from here. We live down in St. Augustine, Florida, so they live up in Georgia, where we used to live. Yeah, sure, crazy. I got some great golf out there, boy. I tell you. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. We live at the on uh, a place called the King and Bear, which is the, uh, the the only golf course in the world designed by Nicholas and Palmer together. Wow, wow, insane. Well, listen, um, you know what? I think we're going to wrap it up, Steve. Uh, this has been fun for me. Um, I. Hope you had an okay time. You know, I mean, it's uh, been great. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. Glad to talk to you, um, and uh, hopefully, I'll come out your way one day and get to see your neck of the woods. Uh, you know, you got to get out to uh, you got to get out to Idaho someday. Uh, my wife and I came out here 25 years ago from Southern California, and we just loved the area. We we stayed. Um, you know, it's clean air, clean water, all that, all those good things, and low population. Uh, it's it. It's pretty cool. We, we, I've, we I've never it. been to Idaho, so I'd love to come see it one day. Uh, well, if you do, uh, uh, I'd like to uh, extend an invitation to play golf with you. There's a couple of great courses here. <laughs> I may take, I may well take you up on that. Thank right. you. Well, great. Hang on uh, after I say goodbye, if you would. Um, well, on that note, I'd like to uh, uh, shout out a, a special thanks to KISU staff manager, Jamin Anderson, for making this program possible, and uh, as well, NPR. So on behalf of the Marshall Public Library, this is Greg Grasso thanking acclaimed international thriller author Steve Barry for spending time with us today. Uh, Steve, where are we going to find your books? I, I suspect they're all over the world. Uh, they're yeah, pretty much wherever you want to get them. You can get them online. Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, your independent bookstore, Barnes and Noble. Uh, we have there in audio, large print, ebook, yep, yep. Uh, hardcover, paperback. The paperback of the Jefferson Key is out now, uh, in stores now, and so uh, it just came out about three weeks ago. And so uh, there's they're everywhere. You won't have any any problem finding one. Great. 